This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith, and we're welcoming you to week seven of our series on the life of Peter and to Acts chapter two and the day of Pentecost. This is kind of a, this is, this is a big thing. Sam, when I was looking at this mm-hmm. chapter this week for personal worship and doing study notes and everything, the first thought that I had was, I usually, usually when I look at a passage, I'm like, I got to find five places to kind of land in here, five things to meditate on. Cause we do one, you know, it's a five day uh, program. And I'm looking at Acts chapter two. I'm thinking, how do I pick just five? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was, a, there's a lot in this chapter. Yeah. This chapter, Jesus spends a ton of his ministry pointing to this day. Um, where he is going to be ascended into heaven, reigning at the right hand of God the Father, and promising that he's going to send the Spirit who's going to be our helper. And today, this Pentecost is the fulfillment of that that is going to sustain and empower the church from that moment until he comes again. So this is a very, very big deal for the church. Yeah. Now, it was in it was back in chapter 1 where he told them to remain in Jerusalem and wait mm-hmm. for what the Father was going to send them, which would be the Holy Spirit. Um, before this time, I mean, just to give people like a, a, a bit of a theological framework here, I mean, in the Old Testament, we have stories where it says the Spirit of God was, you know, came upon him and that sort of thing. But... Um, mm-hmm. Old Testament versus New Testament, Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Spirit sort of came and went. Am I right? Like the Spirit would empower an individual to do something, but then believers were not inhabited by the Spirit of God all the time. Correct. That's that's the main difference. So when you read, you know, we talked about this when we went through Judges, that all of these great heroes, you know, when they would do some fantastic feat, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon them, like you said. And in that moment, it's like the Spirit empowered them to do something seemingly supernatural for the glory of God. Well, what Pentecost is communicating to us is if you're a believer, the Spirit of the living God comes and dwells in you, abides in you, doesn't come and go, but now lives in you. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you and is doing mighty things through you your whole life as a believer. You know, it sort of raises a question with me um, that if if in the Old Testament, when the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, they did things like, tearing lions apart and knocking temples down and all these things that I'm thinking of Samson, of course, all these things Mm -hmm. that they were able to do under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And here in Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, we're going to see it was with such intensity and power that there were visible and audible manifestations that others could hear and see. Um, Mm-hmm. I I is there I feel like this must be something wrong with us. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> us modern day Christians because you know the spirit indwells us and yet it seems as though we're like milk toast compared to these guys. 
But it, but it's important to understand that the Spirit of the Lord still comes upon people in special ways. It's not, you know, this isn't entirely just replacing, you know, what God did with Samson. God still does the miraculous. He will still, you know, come upon a situation in a mighty way to do the miraculous. Mm. But what this is saying, God is almost accomplishing an, a far greater feat. We don't, we don't think of it that way. But what the Spirit is doing is it's breathing new life into dead bones. Like every single person who is becoming a believer is a miracle of resurrection. You know, what is spiritually dead, what is what is an animosity toward God by the power of the Spirit, which, you know, Jesus cleanses you of all sin and he makes you inhabitable by the Spirit. Because if you were sinful, if you were Walking around in the mess, the Spirit could not come and abide you. So the cross, the atonement that cleanses and forgives all sin and clothes you in righteousness righteousness, now makes you worthy to be inhabited by the Spirit who now comes inside you and every single day is doing a miracle of resurrection in you when you die to self and you allow the Spirit to raise you up to new life. Every day, the Spirit is doing a mm-hmm. miracle Hmm. Well, let's get into it. Um, I guess maybe we'll we'll sort of take this first paragraph. I'll read this down to like verse eleven, and then we can uh, we can look at it. Uh, Acts chapter two, beginning in verse one. Uh, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. <laughs> so the first thing that, it, that that occurs to me is it the first thing we get told is that the spirit comes with a sound like a mighty rushing wind and mm-hmm. I've often thought about that you know like a mighty rushing wind I mean you know how loud was it and I just today this time really for the first time I, I looked I noticed that at verse six it says in the sound the multitude came together this whatever happened, Sam, was loud enough that they like heard it all over town. Have, have you ever like I, I can remember being in South Florida? You know, we've been through hurricanes. Uh, when I was in Vero, we had the eye of a hurricane go over us, and it was a weak hurricane. But I remember going outside, brilliant as I am, going outside, <laughs> during, and it was deafening. Like I could talk out loud, and you couldn't hear my voice over the wind. I couldn't hear my own voice over the the sound of the wind, and so. It was loud, and yeah. everybody's going, "What in the world is that?" Um, coming together. Well, if you think about it, how does how does sound work, right? If I'm talking to you, you know, we're, if we're in the same place, if I'm talking to you, I'm making you know sound waves come out of my mouth. Air pressure it travels through the air to your ears, and then your eardrums 
translate that back into noise that you can hear. And if there's a strong wind blowing, mm-hmm. it first it blows away the, the the wind that's coming out of my mouth and replaces it with <laughs> you know, that's all you can hear. So you know, yeah, it would be dominant. I mean, there wouldn't you wouldn't be able to hear anything else, you know. Um, but it's interesting that the spirit was, you know, rushing down upon these apostles to fill the and fill and empower them, and and it was so dramatic that it was something that that other people heard. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this was a I've never heard of another thing like this. Like when in other instances in the in the Bible where it talks about the spirit, you know fell upon them or the spirit came. They, there would be things that would happen either immediately like they would begin to speak in other tongues or there would be some kind of manifestation or just transformed lives. But it was all this kind of after the fact, it's like the spirit came upon you and this. In this case, it's like, the, how did you know the spirit was coming upon them? It sounded like a freight train. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was kind of feeling like, this is, again, me reading it. I shouldn't read into these. I just do. I can't help it. But mm-hmm. I was picturing like the spirit, the Holy Spirit, like eager, like wanting to come and fill these believers. Like, the, mm-hmm. like there was this energy that was pent up, waiting for God to give the word. And when the Father said, go, the Holy Spirit came out like a tidal wave. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is this is a Sam original, but I, I, <laughs> one of the things that I think we're meant to see here is that when God comes to do something new, when he comes to deliver a new covenant, in particular, I'm thinking of Sinai, when Moses goes up on the mountain, what's going on? It is absolutely terrifying. The right. mountain is shaking. The wind is blowing, right? And it says the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. Well, now what's happening with the disciples? Now all of a sudden the word by the power of the Spirit is coming to dwell in their hearts, the Lord himself coming to dwell in their hearts, the brand new era, this this new covenant of Christ's blood moving forward. And what's going on? You have the rushing wind and something that looks like fire is on top of them, not the mountain. And I think we're we're to understand what God is doing as he's moving into this era of the new covenant that is now not a mountain that people can't touch. But it's in individual believers. Mm-hmm. It's 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 powerful what that's communicating. It's like saying, you know, if Peter is standing there and the wind is blowing all around and the fire is on top of him, Peter is now like he's a picture of Sinai, except a brand new covenant has come. Mm-hmm. I guess the next time that we see this <laughs> will be, you know, we we talk about the <clears throat> what will it be like when when Jesus returns? People are. The, you know what they look forward to, and I'm thinking it's going to be a light show. Then also, there won't be any. There won't be any way that you would go. Did Jesus return this morning? Did that happen? Yeah. I don't. I, I'm. A, I'm really sure that when Jesus comes back, we're going to know. It's going to be yeah. loud. And he and it's says, going to be lights. You know. He says you won't miss it. <laughs> like when it happens, just as lightning flashes from the east to the west, like you're going to know. Yeah, you're going to know. It's it's going to light up the sky. It's going to be a light show. So in this case, when the Spirit came upon them, the first thing that happened was they began to speak in other tongues, it says, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the gift of tongues is something that happens in lots of different situations throughout the New Testament. You hear that. Mm -hmm. uh, You hear it brought up many different times. And there's a lot of debate, uh, especially in modern times, over 
what is the gift of tongues? How does it operate? Does it still operate? That kind of thing. Um, in this case, this gift of tongues was was special in that, you know, whatever tongue it was the apostles were speaking in, everybody heard it in their own native language. So there was this was to me, I look at this being like a two part miracle. It's like, yeah, the apostles were speaking in other tongues, but the listeners were hearing everything the apostles said in their own native language, or that's how they perceived it mm-hmm. anyway. So this really was like yeah. a two part miracle. This was really special. Yeah, and and one of the things when it lists out all those different countries and lands, Parthians and Medes and Elamites sure. and Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, all that, if you took Jerusalem and you identified it on a map and then you drew lines to all these different places that are being listed, it really, it looks like an explosion with shrapnel going out in every single direction. And I mm. think when Luke is telling us in, in the book of Acts is this is a moment, because remember – all of these people are coming from all of these different places, right? Right. And they're all going to go home to these different places. Right. And it, it really does. It takes the gospel and it explodes into all of these different regions in every single direction. And what is the dominant language? Like this is something that I heard in a sermon from Tim Keller that I really appreciated. He says, the spirit and this in this moment, Pentecost, when the spirit comes to dwell in the hearts of believers – you know, the dominant language is not Hebrew, it's not Greek, it's not Latin, it's not Georgian or whatever. Everybody hears it in their own language. And he says, I think God did that on purpose, because if he came and everybody heard it in one particular language, no doubt the people of that particular language would be like, oh, you see, we're the best. Yeah. He spoke yeah. in our language. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it's God is leveling, and he is saying this gospel is for all nations. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to learn one particular language in order to, to be in. You know, like Islam, the only way that you're allowed to read the Quran is in Arabic. Like, that's what it's supposed to be. It's, it's, that's the dominant culture, and everyone else should bow down to it. Mm-hmm. At Pentecost, it's saying this is for all nations, and there is no one that's dominant. Mm-hmm. That's it's good. really wonderful. That is wonderful. So this miracle where, the, you know, the, like I said, it's a two-part miracle. The, the, the apostles are speaking in whatever tongue it is they're speaking, and the people are enabled to hear them in what appeared to be their own their own native tongue um, in a way. And you, you were saying this to me, uh, I don't know, we talked about this 10 days ago or so, but you said that this was sort of a reversal of what was happening at the Tower of Babel. What, what did you mean by that, like a reversal of the Tower of Babel? Going back to the beginning of Genesis, you know, all the every time that the Lord lays a judgment upon the people, you know, at the fall, for instance, Jesus takes up all of those curses upon himself. You know, he'll they're cursed with thorns, Jesus wears a crown of thorns. They're cursed, you know, they realize they were naked, well, Jesus will go to the cross naked. All of this, all of the curses of the fall, Jesus takes upon himself to give us freedom from. And so when you get to the Tower of Babel, which is in Genesis chapter 11, what's the story? You have all of humanity that's united, right? And it says that, you know, they come together with this scheme that they're going to build this tower that reaches to the heavens. But what are, what are the thoughts behind it? It's a bunch of people and they say, they, they flat out tell you what their motives are. They say, we don't want to be scattered. 
which is totally defiant to what the Lord had commanded, right? And yeah, he said, go he populate says, the world, right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, you're going to go to the ends of the earth. You're going to subdue the earth and, and fill it. But they're like, nope, we're not going to be scattered. So we're not going to do the will of the Lord. They also say, come, let us make a name for ourselves. In other words, our glory, our reputation is more important than God. So they're, they're again, they're in defiance. And what's interesting is when they say, let's build this tower that goes up into the heavens. We know now because we're finding so much of the writings from that region in ancient, ancient world that what they would do on these mountains is the king would go up on top of these ziggurats, these towers that they would build that look like pyramids, stepped pyramids. They would go up on the top of them, and then they would speak with the authority like they had just met with the gods, and now they're coming down to announce the authority. So they don't want to reach heaven. They want to replace heaven with the king's decree, and so it's all about their kingdom. And when God looks at this – He says, my goodness, when they're all communicating and they're all overwhelmed with this sinful nature, they're like the anti-gospel. They're they're doing everything to bring destruction and misery into the world. And so what does he do? He takes this oneness in its sinful nature and he scatters them and he changes their languages. And when you come to Pentecost, what changes is now you have – all these men from, quote, every nation under heaven who now all come to this one place, hear the reversal there, and what does the Lord do? He changes miraculously to where now they hear their own language when someone of a foreign tongue is speaking. He's reversing Babel, and there's there's like such a, a clear message in that because we talked about this this morning in our staff devotions. But really, because you think, oh, my goodness, the Lord is dividing people. You know, how could he do that? I thought God loved unity. But when you have really wicked, self-absorbed, ungodly people who are granted access to talk to one another and they're granted access to communicate with one another, what happens? It never goes well. look well, at face. Yeah. <laughs> you look at Facebook. Yeah. You know? yeah. That's what happens. Yeah, that's true. People get na- – look at the comment sections on articles from all over the world. People are nasty. They 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 pull- If you're not – if you're about yourself, the nastiest things happen. And so what the Lord does here is he's saying when the, the gospel is saturated in this oneness, in this ability to bring people from every nation together, now beautiful things will come. And so – the Lord blesses that unity when the gospel's behind it because men, the gospel calls for humility. The gospel calls for selflessness and love and charity and all of those kinds of things. When men come together around those principles, you get really beautiful outcomes. When men come together with ungodly motives, you get awful, awful outcomes. We see that in our own world today. And so this, this Pentecost is the anti Babel. God is undoing this curse, and he's allowing his kingdom to move forward. Um, verse 5 is a little misleading, where it says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. It kind of gives the impression that they were like living there full time. They were there because of the Passover, right? Of the, t- of their, right. The, the time that or it Pentecost. was. Pentecost. So the Bible, if you go back to the Law of Moses, there are three major festivals that required Jews to come to Jerusalem to celebrate it at the temple. So one of them is the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, that's in a whole different part of the, the year. 
But then you have Passover. Passover is the celebration that's going on when Jesus is crucified. It's remembering the lambs that were slain in Egypt where death passed over the houses right before the Israelites escaped out of Egypt and began as a new nation. But 50 days, Pentecost comes from that – Penta. it comes from 50. It's 50 days after uh, Passover, and what it is is it's a celebration of the harvest. So after Passover, you have the celebration of first fruits, and then seven weeks later, 50 days later, there's a celebration over the harvest that's starting, the wheat harvest specifically. And so it's another celebration where everybody had to come back um, as one of these mandated celebrations. And so – Jews from all over the world have come together to dwell, in a sense, for that you know set festival um, to celebrate it for that week. And so this is a, an amazing evangelistic opportunity, and God uses it. Just like he used Passover, all these people from all over the world come to Passover. They see the crucifixion. They hear about the resurrection, or they've seen Jesus. And then it's like a shotgun blast back out to the world. It's really the reason why, you know, historically – we can show that the church was already growing and thriving before the apostles ever stepped foot in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's already there when they get there. Why? Right. Because these witnesses had come for Passover. These witnesses were there at Pentecost when this happens, and they're all going back to these synagogues that are all over the world going, you'll never believe what happened, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and the church explodes before the, go- before the apostles ever get there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that I noticed when I was looking at this is that some of the crowd heard them and understood, and it's obvious that some of the crowd didn't. All were amazed and perplexed, mm-hmm. saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they they are filled with new wine. They're drunk, you know? And uh, yeah, yeah. so, again, speaking as a Reformed guy, it's like, God gives people ears to hear when he wants them to hear. Mm -hmm. It's like God does a work in the person who's hearing the message as well as working through the person giving the message. You know, it's like this parable, the seed and the sower. The seed is going to properly take root and grow to a, a full, healthy, mature plant when the soil's been prepared by the farmer you know i mean that's and mm-hmm. the lord is doing that and i so, so i think there's some in the crowd that the holy spirit was moving on them so they could hear and then there were others who were kind of on the outside looking in and they must have thought everybody was crazy yeah i've never thought of it from that perspective but i don't see another way around that argument i mean that seems pretty clear that the spirit's enabling some and not others yeah yeah that's interesting they're like they're drunk, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you're not hearing them in your language, that would be the natural conclusion. Yeah, yeah, it would be. Yes, you're, what? What are you talking about? You're hearing them say what? But, dude, I hear him also. He's just that's no. He's nonsense. <laughs> I don't know what he's saying, but it's not in our you know that kind of thing. So, so uh, let's get back to the text and see what Peter uh, starts to respond with. The first thing that Peter does because Peter stands up. It says, verse 14, but Peter, standing up, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Uh, that's like 9 a.m., right? Uh, so I'm mm-hmm. thinking he's obviously never been around uh, a college campus on the uni- in, in, in the <laughs> yeah. United States 
because 9 a.m. is like they've been drinking since 7. But at any rate. Yeah, I, now they're going to bed. Yeah, then you're correct. <laughs> that is true. They're going to bed. Uh, since it's only the third hour of the day, verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Uh, that quotation from Joel is quite a quotation. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, obviously, Peter says this is what's happening right then. So then mm-hmm. we're in the last days by, you know, in the last days it shall be. Um, would you define the last days then as being sort of just, the you know, it started with the church and we're still in it? I think we have to say yes, um, I, and I think it began there. You know, the, the scriptures repeatedly teach that you don't know the hour of the Lord's return, and so therefore everybody is always to suppose that they're there. You know, like these are we don't know. It could happen before we finish recording this. You know, you're always to be ready, and you know, you see. By the way, how many how many visions and dreams of people coming to faith over in Muslim nations where the gospel is outlawed. You know, stories of this still happen today mm-hmm. of of people in Saudi Arabia and Iran and places where the church is viciously persecuted coming to faith where Jesus comes to them in a dream or, you know, so this kind of stuff is happening and it tends to be happening in places like you mentioned earlier where the church is advancing into places that are that are closed to the gospel, new yeah. territories, yeah. persecuted places. Yeah. Uh, Peter goes on then after he's after this prophecy of Joel, beginning verse twenty two, he uh, begins to talk about Jesus. He said, "Men of Israel, hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus." Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's obvious that that Peter here was wanting to put right up in front of them, Jesus has returned from the dead. I mean, that was like the that was the thing that that most importantly he wanted everyone there to know. Jesus is back from the dead. He rose from the yeah. dead. Yeah, and and we've talked about this before, but you look at the sermons of Acts, and this is this is true of Peter. Uh, they're they're absolutely laser focused on the resurrection, and and you got to let's remember we're in a series about Peter right now. You know the last story. You know the the restorations of Peter on the shore of of Galilee, where he's still saying, you know, I'm not sure if I I'm not sure if I'm all in for you, Jesus, but I you know I love you. Now he is outside the walls of the temple in front of thousands of people, we find out. And he's not only saying Jesus died and was raised again, but he's saying you crucified and killed him. Like, who is this Peter all of a sudden? <laughs> you know, like 
the resurrection, the encounter with Jesus, that conversation on the shores of Galilee has turned him in from, turned him from a stammering, kind of cowardly, like, I'm not sure I can do this disciple to within a few weeks. Now he is bold. Yeah. And he believes in the resurrection, the power of the resurrection. He's not afraid of death. He's not afraid of persecution. And he is dropping truth bombs <laughs> in Jerusalem. This is a different man. It's it's stunning to see how bold and courageous he all of a sudden is. It is. And it's also a sign of what happens when somebody with Peter's uh, you know, personality and his gifts, with the way that God made Peter, and then when God empowered him, it's like God dropped that Holy Spirit battery in Peter. <laughs> it is that kind of transformational thing. It's like that that power source of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I love that line. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And you can see that confidence is in him. Peter knows that death has no power over him either, and so he's willing to risk it declaring really scandalous in the ears of the Jerusalem population. He's launching truth bombs into their ears because he is no longer afraid of death. Why? Because he has come face to face with a God who's defeated it. Right. You know, I heard uh, Tim Keller recently, and if people don't know who Tim Keller is, he's a a pastor in the Presbyterian Church who's – he's just become a real, like, uh, a voice for church planting, cultural engagement, um, but also, you know, solid theology. He's just a – he's a a brilliant guy. He's a great writer and a great speaker. Um, I like Tim Keller's books a lot. I've I've listened to Tim Keller speak live um, and, of course, many different recorded things. But the way that he presents things, I just – he's a really, really useful person in this time and for this Mm -hmm. church. But right now, he's facing pancreatic cancer. And the prognosis on pancreatic cancer is never good. And so I heard him on a podcast recently where somebody asked him, how are you doing? How are you? you know, and he talked about where are you? He said, but how do you, the guy said, how, how do you feel about this? What have you done? How has your faith helped you? And his answer was, he said, it, it forced me, you know, having this cancer and knowing what the outlook is, he said, forced me to go back and look at what I believed about the resurrection. And he said, because here's the thing, if I really believe that that grave is empty, if I really believe that, that, that Jesus walked out of that grave, how can I let this scare me at all? How can I be afraid of anything? And that is the, that's the bottom line of the resurrection is that if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and you believe that you also will, how can you be afraid of anything? Mm-hmm. You know? We can be afraid of going through things, by the way. I don't want to, I don't want to make that sound too glib. We can be afraid yeah. of going through things, but ultimately afraid of death, you know, no. Yeah, you have the confidence that it's not the end. I've given an illustration in a sermon before that if I asked you to sprint at full speed at a brick wall, you wouldn't do it. And if you did, you'd wince and brace yourself and everything else. It changes the way that you run. But if that brick wall you found out was just onion paper, you know, painted, <laughs> you, you'd you run full speed. You wouldn't right. be afraid of it because it's not going to stop you. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to be the end. And you're not even going to change your stride. You're going to run right through that thing. 
That's the difference in believing that death is no longer this impenetrable brick wall that's the end of you. Right. Jesus has turned it into this onion paper that you just blast right through. It doesn't harm you. It has no sting anymore, according to the Apostle Paul. Like, its its power is over, and so it changes the way that you run. It's not an enjoyable process, whatever's bringing you to death, it, and we're not making light of that, but it's it gives you the confidence to say this is not the end. Mm. So then Peter goes on and he goes through, uh, he reads uh, some uh, prophecies from David, uh, from Psalms. Um, you can read that for yourself, folks, if you want. It's kind, of, it's kind of long. But I'll say this. If you go through it, one, you'll notice what is Peter? Peter's not preaching on ethics. He's not preaching virtues. He's not recreating Jesus' sermons about the way to live. He's not even preaching so much about the cross. It's like I said – he is laser-focused on the fact that this Savior has defeated death. Right. That is what turns the city of Jerusalem upside down. And one of the things that I love is he says, as you yourselves know. Right. So he's not saying, hey, you weren't here for this. He's saying, you saw it. Right. What are you going to do with it? So that when he gets done with that, it's the, the, the people that are listening that are hearing this. It says, verse 37, now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said mm. to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Um, hmm. I do want to make the, the comment here that this is one, you know, there are some Folks who will say that, and again, I'm not calling out anybody in particular, but there are some branches of the Christian faith that will say that if you have not been baptized, meaning water baptized in the church, that you've not, you know, you've not gone through that process, that church tradition or sacrament of baptism, that you are not saved. You are not actually a Christian. That's not what Peter's saying here, um, where he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ. He's not saying in water. Um, yeah, so baptism itself, and we kind of lose this, but baptism is intended to be a picture of your death and resurrection. So you go down underneath the water, which is a picture of burial, and you come back up, which is a picture of resurrection. Well, you can't do that in your own power. And so when it says that you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, it's like you're hidden in him. You're you're entirely entrusting your salvation in the work that he has done. He is the one who validates it, not you. Um, and so it's, it's handing over your fate to him entirely. So then when he's telling them here, be, you know, repent, be baptized, uh, you know, this, this sort of thing is going to be revolutionary to these guys who are listening because they're, you know, I mean, they're Jews, right? So they have been told all along, what do we have to do? Well, what you have to do is we're going to have, you know, bring in your animals and we're going to have the sacrifice and you have mm -hmm. to keep my commandments and statutes. This must have been like a shock to them. 
I have to what? It's about me? It's not about it's not about bringing things to the temple? I mean, this was new stuff to the Jewish people that were listening. Yeah, and within a few generations, you know, the Lord has the Romans come through Jerusalem and tear down the temple and essentially get rid of every means of atonement that they had had prior to that. You know, the temple, the sacrificial system, all of it is done away with. And the book of Hebrews, if you read it, one of the main points that it's making is, no, no, no. Jesus was the once-and-for-all temple. He was the once-and-for-all sacrifice. He was the once-and-for-all high priest. He has taken care of the entire law on your behalf. He has granted you perfect obedience in the sight of God. He has taken all your sins, punished for all of your sins. He is the entirety of your salvation from start to finish. He is the fulfillment of Everything the Old Testament required. And so your salvation is all in him. You can let go of all the ritualistic sacrifices and everything else that never really atoned for sin in the first place. Hebrews says, it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sin. Those were only meant to point you toward the Lamb of God who does take away the sins of the world. Mm. So about 3,000 that, that first day or that first sermon, you know, that, that's quite a conversion. About 3,000 people uh, were saved at that point. Uh, and then verse 42 through 47 here at the end of the chapter describes to us, gives us a snapshot, a picture of what was happening there at that first church immediately following this day of Pentecost. Uh, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." I love this picture because one of the things we are mm-hmm. always talking about at our church is, you know, what, what are our values? And we talk about worship mm-hmm. and community and mission. And we talk about, you know, we, we gather together in worship where, where we, where we're taught the, the, the word that we connect in community where we have fellowship and that we find our platform for mission. That's what's right here, man. It's right here in this passage, mm-hmm. yeah. those same values. So this is one of those – like every church, every pastor would love to see this come to fruition in their church. But, it, you know, it does. It lays down kind of what the church should be about. They're devoted, which means, you know, they're entirely committed to study – the apostles' teaching. What is that? Well, it's the New Testament. It's the Gospels. It's the right. writings of Paul, Right. They're studied, they're devoted, they're all in committed to studying this and growing in their understanding of the gospel. But notice they, they're also devoted to fellowship. Like one of the most, one of the popular things that's prevalent and for probably the last 50, 60 years is this movement that says, well, I can, I can follow Jesus, but I don't want to go to church. I, I don't like organized religion. And so I'm just going to do this on my own. You can't do it on your own. 
Individualized Christianity makes no sense in the scripture. You are called to be part of a body. You're called to be part of this fellowship. And by the way, the reason why they're devoted, <laughs> you know, they're committed to it is because it doesn't come easy all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it, there's times when I'm in the church and I think, you know what? I'd, I'd rather not be around some of these people, <laughs> you know, but. <laughs> But honestly, like it's the committing, it's doing life together, being encouraged with one another, and they're breaking bread, they're praying for one another. And what does that do for you? You, It makes you part of this community where you can't help but love one another. You're doing, you're giving up, you know, when it says that they're giving away, you know, they're selling their possessions and belongings and distributing what they have as people have need. Why do they do that? Like, it's because the Lord is more precious to them than anything they have. And because they've been investing in one another, the fellowship is more precious to them than anything they have. And so what that does to the world, the world rocks, walks around and looks at all their possessions and bank accounts and money. And in reality, if they could be honest for a moment, that's their God. That's what they want more than fellowship, more than their relationship with God. And so they hoard it, but they're now the world is looking at a church that's giving away money, which is their God. Like they're giving away the most precious things. Why? To show love for one another. That revolutionized and it spread the church through Europe like wildfire because it was something entirely different than the world had ever seen before. Um, and the early church worshiped the Lord above all else. To where they were generous, you know, they, your heart is already satisfied in the Lord. All these things, you know, these are blessings, but God has given them to me to be a blessing to others. The world had never seen anything like this. And I think that uh, we see the outcome of that where it says having favor with all the people. Um, you know, oh, the church is having a hard time. The church is being is mm-hmm. being criticized today. Well, maybe not if we looked more like this. Maybe not if this was more of what people saw when they looked at at the church in America, in particular, because that's where I am in America, and I can only speak for Americans. But if this was what (laughs) they saw, if they saw a church that was devoted to teaching and fellowship and was generous and took care of people and and – that's what they were about. So like the most important thing to them, as you say, was the Lord. No reasonable person – and I'm going to throw that in there because I, I started off this week by saying in study notes, no one will oppose that. And you're like, Mark, <laughs> someone will oppose it. And you're right. You're right. Someone will oppose it. Uh, but no reasonable person is going to look at that, that kind mm-hmm. of a church and say, I don't want that in my neighborhood. I don't want to live next door to one of those. I don't want one of those in my city. <laughs> These stinking charitable people yeah, yeah. look at them i being hate glad i hate their humility yeah <laughs> they're, they're being glad you know and generous and devoted to the uh, yeah i hate that yeah. so one of my favorite like you know i love early church history and i like i'm a nerd about all that stuff but and some of my very favorite things to read from the early church are people who are hostile to the church mm-hmm. um so when you go back and you read what they had to say about the church, it's kind of like I, you wear it as a badge of honor because like one of the things they'll say is, oh, you know, this this faith is just a bunch of uh, very gullible women because they were f- furious that the church was, you know, growing leaps and bounds with women um, or, or that it catered to slaves and the lowest rungs of society. Well, yeah, it did, you know. 
it showed dignity to people that normal society never had. Or, you know, one of my favorites, Celsus, who's in the first couple centuries, who hates Christianity. He's He writes one of the fiercest criticisms of Christianity. You know, he, he talks about how they start with the misguided notion that they're immortal. So, in other words, they start with the resurrection. And because they believe that, they care for one another and they give away their possessions like they hate their possessions. And, oh, my. Uh, one of my favorite ones comes from uh, Julian, who is the emperor as the Roman gods were in decline. You know, Christianity, it was clear, was ascending and mm-hmm. becoming the, the predominant force. But he says this, it is a scandal that there is not a single Jew, he's talking about Christians here, there's not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans, again, Christians, care not only for their own poor, but ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. And so these Christians are taking care of the very culture that's persecuting them, and the Caesar at the time is going, this is a scandal, they're loving our poor better than we do. Wow. Like, that was the early church. That's why the church exploded, because men who were th- and women who were totally submitted and overwhelmed by the Spirit of God working in them, who were willing to die to self and give away possessions and love their enemies, went out into a world and lived a radical life that was different than anything the world had ever known at that time, and it turned the world upside down, and it started here at Pentecost. Mm. Well, that's a good word, and that's one we will end on. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, uh, this look at the day of Pentecost and uh, the Apostle Peter there. Um, If you would like to uh, correspond with us, perhaps to let Sam or I know what's wrong with our opinion about the gift of tongues, (laughs) (laughs) our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O vistachurch.com, where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast by visiting riovistachurch.com forward slash out of water. You can also find Out of Water on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, on Spotify, or in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app where you can get our personal worship and all kinds of other information about our church. Uh, We will be back next week with actually what is the conclusion of our series on the life of Peter, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.